Go ahead and take a seat, please. The year was 610 when a well-known merchant of the Arabian Peninsula started to receive what he called recitations from God. And as God spoke to him, others began listening to the words of this man. They began adhering to and abiding by this man's words. But not everybody was very pleased with his recitations. In fact, some of his own village, the Kurashay, began to threaten hostile actions against this man and those who were following him. Fortunately, he had a wealthy uncle, Abu Talib, who offered his protection over this man and over those who were following him. And in fact, he pledged blood violence and blood vengeance against anyone who did anything against he or his followers. And so in the very early years, as he spoke of what God wished and willed for the people, the man would not give permission to fight or to allow his followers to shed blood. He said that God called them to endure insults and to forgive the ignorant. And that was the main teaching of this group until 619, when Abu Talib died, when the protective umbrella went away, and the new uncle who took over as the leader of this village said he would no longer offer protection to this man, nor would he offer protection to those who were following him. And so now with this increasing threat of violence against them, what would they do? The man said that God now had a different stance on violence. The man named Muhammad said, fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you, but begin not hostilities. Permission is given to those who fight because they have been wronged. The story of Muhammad is a story, though he comes of a different faith, is actually something I think that anybody as people of faith can identify with. It is very easy to be a people of faith, to live in a certain way, to claim certain things until you face an obstacle a seemingly insurmountable obstacle, and you say, I don't know if I can continue to trust in the face of this. Don't you realize that there are seasons where it's easier to trust God? Seasons where it's harder to trust God? It's easier to trust God to provide when you've got a full-time job and the weekly checks just keep coming in and in. It's easier to trust God when everyone else around you says, I trust God, do you trust God? But also there are seasons, isn't there, when it's a little bit harder to trust God? might be a little harder to trust God when it's the winter and the income's not the same. It might be harder to trust God when it's been three days since you fed your family and you're wondering if you can trust in Him to provide for you. It might be harder to trust God if someone says, if you don't renounce your faith, you will be killed. It might be harder to trust God when people around you are making fun of God and then they look at you and say, do you believe in God? There are seasons where it's harder to trust God. Seasons where apparently it is easier to trust God. Ever since Isaiah chapter 7, there's been a repeating theme in the book. And I hope this word is not like, I've never heard this word before as we've studied Isaiah. Trust. Trust is the foundation of Isaiah's prophecies. It's the trust of Isaiah's instruction to the people. We know that there was this trust test in Isaiah 7 where the people failed that trust test. And so looking back, Isaiah has taken the people in chapters 13 to 27 to a trust school. He's been tutoring them and reminding them of why it is foolish to trust in these other foreign nations. 
they think trusting in Assyria is a good bet. And Isaiah will say, you think that's a good bet? Trusting in God is an even better bet. But as we know, it's easy to sit in a classroom and nod your head whenever the preacher is saying, trust God. And it's something completely different to go out in your life in the face of an insurmountable thing and say, I'm going to trust God in and through this. So the lessons in chapter 13 through 27 were primarily pointing back to the incident involving Ahaz and Assyria. But in Isaiah chapter 28 through essentially coming up till 40, it becomes clear that the teachings are no longer rooted in things of the past, but there is a new present crisis facing Judah. And what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to find out, did the people learn any lessons from all of these things he's taught about trust? And so as we look forward now to what's going to happen, I want to just take a minute and go back and let's look at the historical markers and remind ourselves of where we've been and remind ourselves of what I, how long Isaiah has been teaching this message of trust. You will likely remember that when Isaiah 6 began, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died. So it's sometime around 742. The events in Isaiah 7 that we read about are recorded during the time when Ahaz is king, which he would have been king between 735 and 715. And it was when Ahaz was king that, of course, uh, Israel and Aram are coming against them. They reach out to Assyria for protection. And that's what Isaiah has been talking about through these chapters of 13 and 27. But in Isaiah 27 or 28, we come to find that clearly by this point, this is during the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So, so this is now entering into coming up on 40, 50 years that Isaiah has been teaching these messages of trust. And after you've been teaching it, you think, by now, I bet the people have got it. 50 years of bringing the words of God and his prophecies. See, after Ahaz has reached out to Assyria and, and formed this alliance with them, um, we use the word alliance, but the word alliance would be more like the, the big bully and the scrawny little kid. And the bully says, if you don't bring me lunch money, I'm going to smash your face in. And Judah, the scrawny little kid, says, okay. And so ever since the days of Ahaz, they've been giving their lunch money over to Assyria so that they would be protected. And that had continued through until the days of Hezekiah. And then at one point, as we're told in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Translation, I'm not giving you my lunch money anymore. There was no immediate consequence of it. But we want to begin to think about why did Judah do this? Was it because Hezekiah had learned all these wonderful lessons and said, Oh, you know what? I am not going to trust in Assyria anymore. I'm going to put my trust solely in God. Well, actually what happened was they said, We found a cheaper bully. This bully is named Egypt. And said, instead of being in a relationship with Assyria, we're going to have a covenant relationship with Egypt instead. We're going to give Egypt our lunch money, but it's less lunch money at least. And then we will be safe and we will be protected. Instead of trusting in God, Judah puts on Facebook marketplace that they want a foreign nation that can protect them and deliver them. Now, any guesses? If you've been studying and listening to what we've been teaching about Isaiah, any guesses what you think Isaiah might say about this? Any guesses how God might feel about this? Well, it becomes very clear in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, exactly how God feels about this new alliance with Egypt. Oh, rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but, not, but against my will, adding sin 
to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my counsel to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the protection of Pharaoh shall become your shame and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach to Haines, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. How does God feel about it? Once again, after all the lessons of trust, instead of trusting in God, they now put their trust in Egypt. The language here is used in verse 2 of the shadow of Egypt. The shadow is the place where you finally get rest. The, the place where you feel safe and protected enough to just have a nap under the tree because all is well and all is safe. But the irony is that Judah already had God. And Judah already lived in God's shadow of protection, but she didn't recognize it. Psalm 91.1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Or 121.5 and 6, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. God offers His shadow and they say, You know what? I think we'd be safer and more protected if we went over and trusted in Egypt to give us the shade, the protection, the rest that we need. Why would Judah do it? Why instead of an alliance with God, would they go off and seek out Egypt? Well, it's the age-old problem of seeing with minds that are fixed on what is seen rather than what is unseen. Judah trusts in what she can see, in what she can assess, in what she can measure. It's easier to trust in things that can be tabulated and calculated, can't it? To say, here, I've run the numbers. And I can predict that this is the better, the safer way to go. And and it's not just this, this tabulation that she does, but she looks over Egypt and says, Egypt has something we need, specifically their horses and chariots. So Isaiah 31, 1 through 3, Alas, for those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because there are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But do not look at the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Yet he too is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will rise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are human and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, the one helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Judah trusted in flesh and not in spirit. So Judah reaches out to Egypt, believing that she will offer her protection. And yet the truth is she offers her no protection whatsoever. 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16 tells about how Hezekiah was then forced once again to give money back to King Sennacherib of Assyria. So Assyria comes, they, they think that Egypt's going to help them out, doesn't work. And eventually what ends up happening is Judah is now paying twice as much lunch money to Assyria. Because the bully has come back. It took a couple of years, but eventually the bully came back. And Isaiah is wondering, why didn't you just trust in God? Now, let's be clear. Isaiah is not promoting what we might call 
an irrational faith. Isaiah is not saying, well, just, just, just trust God and hope things will work out. What Isaiah is doing is he is saying that if you are going to expand the admissible criteria, you will find that the smartest, the wisest, the best, the most rational choice in all the world is to be in an alliance with God. And I want to illustrate that by comparing what Isaiah is teaching to what's taught in a book called The Speed of Trust. It's a, it's a secular book for a secular audience, and we'll see if it makes any sense to trust in God. So Stephen M. R. Covey says that, when, that trust is built when people, who, first of all, begin with integrity. They have character. The people that you trust, need, you need to know at the core they are good, noble, honorable people. And then those people need to have good intentions. Now, the problem is so many people have good intentions that they never actually follow through on. So in order to be trustworthy, you don't just have to have good intentions, but you have to have certain capabilities, competence. You know, when, when a five-year-old sees you crying and, and the five-year-old says, don't worry, daddy, it's going to be okay. I'll take care of it. You say, oh man, great intentions. I, I love the fact that my, my kid says they're going to take care of it, but I'm not quite sure they're competent to pay the bills. So you have to have some competence. And then finally, there must be results. We trust in people who accomplish what they say they're going to accomplish. If someone keeps saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and they never do it, and they never do it, I bet you won't trust them. So let's look at these criteria. Let's apply it to the foreign nations, and let's apply it to God, and let's rationally ask ourselves, who would you trust in? So let's look at first the integrity and the character. Remember, we said that Hezekiah uh, had to pay a bunch of money to Assyria, whenever she came and she doubled her payments now, well, it seems like Assyria decided, even though you paid me money, I'm going to attack you anyways. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 1, Ah, you destroyer, you uh, who yourself have not been destroyed, you treacherous one, with whom no one has dealt treacherously. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. When you've stopped dealing treacherously, you will be dealt with treacherously. That's the problem with the foreign nations. You say, I'm going, to, I'm going to buy them off, I'm going to pay them money, and then they won't attack me until, guess what? They say, you know what? We're going to attack you anyways. When you try to do business with people who do not have integrity, you will not be satisfied with the end result. And Isaiah is saying, why are you making alliances with these foreign nations that have no character to them? So what about God? Why would we trust in God? Isaiah, in Isaiah 32.1, speaks of God who will send a ruler. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Do you want to live in a land where people who rule over you are treacherous, or those who deal with things are righteous, and they will deal with all things with justice? Righteousness and justice are the foundations of a society where you can live in a place of trust. And Isaiah is saying, look, you can make an alliance with somebody who is has no character, who are treacherous, or you can make that same alliance with a God who rules with righteousness and justice. And even by secular standards, that kind of seems like a little bit of a no-brainer, doesn't it? What about capabilities? Good intentions are great, but can you do what you say you're going to do? And the problem with Egypt is, Egypt can't offer any protection. Isaiah chapter 30, in the second part of verse 6. So Judah is carrying their riches on the backs of donkey, their treasure uh, on the humps of camels to people, to the Egyptians, that cannot 
profit them. So you are, you are investing in them, and guess what? You're not going to get any return on your investment. Verse 7 then says, For Egypt's help is worthless and empty. And we do find that when Assyria comes, Egypt cannot offer any protection for them. So here's how Isaiah describes their decision to partner with Egypt in chapter 28, verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. In other words, Isaiah is saying, to to make a covenant with Egypt is the same as making a covenant with a dead man to protect you. Any guesses how that might turn out? How valuable it would be to to, to bring money to a grave and put it in the grave and say, we're going to get a great return on this investment? Isaiah is saying, this will come to nothing. You have taken shelter in falsehood. What about God? Does God have the capabilities to do what He has promised? Isaiah chapter 30 verse 8 says, Come now, write it down before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, so that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. In other words, God is saying, look, we're going to get this in writing about exactly what I'm going to do, about exactly how things are going to turn out, so that later you can go back to the writing and say, this is exactly what God had said would happen. Anybody who gives a promise, puts it in writing, tells you to take it to the bank and ask you later to look at it and it's exactly as they said it would happen, that person in my books is trustworthy because they are capable of doing what they have promised to do. And this is why God says he is capable. Isaiah 31, 3, the Egyptians are human, but not God. Their horses are flesh, but not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble And the one helped will fall, and they will all perish together. In other words, as soon as God outstretches his hand, you're going to see those who are against him will fall. And against Jerusalem, because of her unfaithfulness, Isaiah 29, 6, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and flame of dividing, devouring fire. That's a lot of capability there. That God controls all things in nature by his word and by his hand. So God has integrity. God has good intentions toward his people. He is capable and he leads to results. Results that have been written generations ago for us that we can consult them again when we ask ourselves, is God trustworthy? Studying through this portion of Isaiah made me think of a book title. It says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's kind of true of me when I read this section of Isaiah. I don't have enough faith to trust in Egypt. I don't have enough faith to trust in Assyria. Because the only thing that seems rational and logical that makes any sense would be to do what? Would be to trust in God. That's why I believe in God. That's why I also trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah chapter 3, 33 is all about this coming king. And the reason why this coming king is trustworthy. Isaiah 33, 17 prophesied in a time when your eyes will see the king in his beauty. And I believe by the Spirit of God, we have all been able to see the king, Jesus himself, God's beloved son. And there are certain promises that are attached to and associated to this beloved king. In Jesus, then, there is the promise of security. 
Isaiah 33, 6, he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Wouldn't that be nice in a time of instability to find something stable? And what Isaiah is promising is that when God's son comes, when the king comes, there will be stability. Stability in the abundance of his salvation. Stability in his wisdom and stability in his knowledge. Of all the things that people could offer you in an unstable time, wouldn't it be good to know that there's some security there? And that's exactly what Christ brings with him. In Jesus, there is the promise of eternal home. Isaiah 33, 20. Look on Zion, the city of our appointed festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be pulled up, and none of whose ropes will ever be broken. You want a shadow to hide in? How about hiding in a place that will never be torn down? The writer of Hebrews speaks of Zion in this way. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Imagine that kind of security and stability and safety. In Jesus, there is the promise of salvation. Isaiah 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our ruler. The Lord is our king. He will save us. It begins somewhat concerning. God's going to judge. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that might be a source of fear. Other than the fact that God's judgment rests on the faithfulness of his son. And the promise is there. He will save us. And that salvation will keep us. Isaiah 33, 24. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who live there will be forgiven of their inequity. Jesus has been, since the very beginning, the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, See, I am laying in Zion a foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who trusts will not panic. That's the kind of trust that I want to have in God. It's the kind of trust that I want to have in Jesus Christ. That in the midst of all the instability of the foreign nations and whatever they may be doing, that we can stand with the assurance and the confidence and knowing that we will trust and not panic. In our life, our faith will probably come up against some what might seem to us insurmountable obstacles. And we might be tempted to say, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to work out a way around this. And Isaiah's call is to say, to be still and to trust in the God who delivers. How do we develop that trust? One of the things this week you may do is I'd encourage you to consider praying this prayer of trust from Isaiah 33, 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning and our salvation in the time of trouble. See, when we pray that prayer, we can stand firm knowing the one who trusts will not panic. God is in control. We're not certain about the outcomes or how certain events will play out. But one thing we are certain of is there's no need to panic. Because God has proven himself throughout history to be trustworthy. And so we pray a prayer of trust in God. And Isaiah makes it clear that you can never experience rest until you have first returned to God. 
Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. And then these disheartening three words, but you refused. And isn't that the offer that's still open for us today? That the God is still inviting us to come to him, to return and to rest so that we will be saved, to trust, and that will be our strength. And the question for each of us this morning is, but will you refuse? See, every Sunday we offer people an opportunity to come, to be baptized, to, to, to confess their faith in God, to turn away from an old way of living. And what that is, it's the ultimate act of trust, being still in God's hands, knowing you won't ever have to panic because the God of salvation has come near and the God of salvation has been brought to you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And for those of us who have received the gracious gift of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we go with the grace of Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to talk with someone, pray with someone, you want to talk about what your life of faith looks like, um, myself and some of the elders will be back as we sing this song. And just invite you to come back and find us while we stand and sing this next song.